Well, we're going to get, we're going to jump right into it. We don't have any announcements for today. Uh, we are slow in camp mode and VBS mode. VBS is over. Columbia trip's over. Uh, and, and so we just got church uh, going on. And uh, so and we got 4th of July this, this week, right? Is that right? I went to, uh, I just got back from Columbia, but after Columbia, I flew straight to Seattle. I was doing some, some coaching and some training there at a, at a staff retreat for my sister's church. And um, <clears throat> so I've lost all track of time. I don't even know what day it is. It's, I assume it's Sunday. That's why I'm here. And, uh, and this week is the 4th of July. I just can't believe that June is gone already. Uh, we had a great time in Colombia. Uh, Pastor Jeremy did a great job. Uh, uh, Carlos Ramos led the led the team, and Jeremy just got to sit back and 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 be excited about what God is doing through Carlos. And uh, and we on Sunday, last Sunday, while my dad was speaking here, uh, which I watched the message, and he did a great job. If you if you missed last week, you should go back and watch it. Uh, but there was a moment in which he threatened to talk about sex. And, uh, and I'm really glad that he did not. It would have been super awkward. I would have had to burn my computer. And, um, but no, what he did talk about is missing miracles. In, um, and just did, he just did a great job. I love my dad's uh, compassion for people and love uh, for people in such a way that, um, that inspires all of us to be better. And, and so if you missed it, go watch it. It's uh, good enough to, to rewatch. And uh, what was I saying about that? Oh, yeah, Colombia. So uh, the team went to uh, Cienega de Oro, which I also heard my dad uh, clearly does not speak Spanish. Um, he totally botched the location of where, where the team was. He was like Cienega de Taco or something like that. <laughs> it was bad. It was, offen- it was offensively bad. Um, so we go to Cienega de Oro. The team was there. Uh, Carlos got to speak. Bruce got to speak uh, at, at the church plant. Um, my wife and I, along with Juan Allen and Leonor, his wife, uh, who head up MMI, Medical Ministry International, we went to another church, a different church, uh, Pastora Rosa's church, Sister Rosa. And uh, we've been to her church before, but we hadn't been in a couple of years, and we had a gift to bring her. Uh, but I just want to give you some context at which the, uh, the Colombians come and worship God in. And this isn't m- meant to shame you. Uh, it, it's just meant to offend you a little bit. Uh, at Sister Rose's church, she's in a, in a really poor barrio in a town called Monteria where the, the team stays. And uh, in the streets of which her, of her church is on are dirt streets um, Compassion International has a, a child development program in there. Kelly and I sponsor uh, a girl in Sister Rose's church. And who we just found out, uh, her parents are divorced. She's going back and forth. She's in a bad situation. And, and I looked at Sister Rose and I said, you take care of Dilities. You, you take care of her. And she said, oh, yes, for sure. Um, but her church, they just had to raise the floors of, uh, of her of her what would be called the sanctuary, right? It's just this open-aired room uh, with sheet metal roofing, no ventilation out the roof. And they had to raise the, 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 the floor. Did I say the ceiling? They had to raise the floor because what would happen is when it rains, let's just say everything uh, flows through the streets, if you know what I'm talking about. And some say it flows downhill, but uh, it flows into the streets. And when it rains, it floods into the church. And so if, the, if it's raining over the weekend and they come into church, then all of that stuff is in the building, in, in, in the church. And so then they have to shovel everything out or they can't have church. And so they, they decided it, it would be best to raise it. And so they raised the, the floor about two steps to, to here uh, so, that, so that the stuff stops and doesn't flow into the, into the facility. The problem is, is they already had a really low roof, a really low ceiling. And so now they just moved everybody about two feet higher to the ceiling. And I am not kidding. I'm not over-exaggerating. Listen, we didn't have air conditioning on Easter Sunday. But it was like 80 in here. 
it was manageable. There, it's, it was 110 degrees in that facility. And they're all sitting and praising Jesus and, and having joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And they're wearing pants. I, I was like, hey, can I wear shorts to present to the church? And they're like, uh, no. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, and so I would put shorts on as soon as I left. Uh, it was hot and it was unseasonably hot. And yet here the people gather together and they worship the Lord each and every week. And, and again, I'm not trying to, to throw shade on you guys and cast shame, um, but I hope you're offended by it. It's, uh, we're going to continue our, our series in this uh, Summer of Prayer series. And, and I, want you to, I want you to hear something. If you hear nothing else today, this is, this is what I hope that you'll hear. Is that prayer is not something that you do. This isn't a, a hey, I've, I've accomplished this discipline in my day. I'm going to check it off the box. I'm good. Prayer is actually something that does you. Uh, maybe, maybe better stated, it would be prayer is not something you accomplish, but it's actually prayer is something that accomplishes something in you. Prayer is not just talking to God. Prayer is actually God talking to you. But prayer isn't, isn't just entering into the presence of God, but, but where the presence of God actually begins to change your life. That's what prayer is. Prayer is where our, our hearts and, and our minds are open to be transformed, to be renewed, as Scripture talks, the renewal of our minds. And unlike any other context where, where there is this relationship that is cultivated through prayer that you become who God has intended you to become. And so the thing I want you to hear this morning because we, we fill out the card, right? We, we, we fill out it each and every week. And we never want you to stop filling out the card. Because it's really, honestly, how we know how to be praying for you. But I think if we're not careful, what can happen is prayer becomes something that, that the pastors do, that the prayer team does. And could I just encourage you with this this morning? You can pray. You can pray. You, as a son, as a daughter of the Most High God, can enter into his presence with thanksgiving, and you can pray. It doesn't stop us from bringing people into our life and allowing people to agree with us and to share with us in the burden that is our season of life that we're going through or our circumstances, but, but let it never take the place. Let it never negate the fact that you can pray. See, I believe that there is a place that God wants to take us as a church. I, I believe that there's a place that God wants to take you, first and foremost, you individually, me. But then as a, as a collective community of faith, that there is a place that God wants to take us that will never happen apart from us becoming a house of prayer. Meaning, as a church, a house of prayer, meaning a house of prayer. That I become a place that is so committed to prayer. Even if our prayer begins with, God help me, I don't even know what to say, that's a start. And we can work with that. And we can go from there. Through this series, we are uh, taking a look at the Lord's Prayer. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, how should we pray? And Jesus' response is, this is how you should pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's what I want to talk about this morning. We, a couple weeks ago, talked about forgiveness. And we talked about the, the concept of forgiveness in when someone hurts us, how do we forgive them? I want to take a little bit of a different approach when we take a look at the word debtors in regard to those people 
who may have offended us. Debtors in the context of people who think differently than us. People who who we don't value or we don't see as of worth into our life. How do we shift our thinking? How do we pray in such a way that we begin to love people, including those who are different than us? Now, I also want to take a look at the fact that, and recognize that for some, there's still this little bit of hang-up in regard to our debtors being maybe the person that we're married to and recognizing that even in that context, God wants to do a work in our life today. Now, I'm no doctor, um, and most doctors would agree with that. Um, yeah, thank you. But correct me if I'm wrong, doctor, doctors, that when something in your body, when you have an organ in your body that's an integral part, I'm not talking about like your gallbladder, that thing's worthless, but I'm talking about an integral organ in your body. When it's not functioning properly, the smallest of infection or the smallest of disease can actually become deadly. Use an example uh, if your liver's not functioning properly and you get an infection or a virus into your body, all of a sudden something that would be common to everyone else, something that your body would ultimately be able to combat and, and deal with, all of a sudden becomes a life-threatening situation. I don't know if you've noticed... Um, Maybe you're not on social media. Maybe you've not been watching TV. But our nation has become a little polarized. Just a, just a little bit. And, and if you're new to LifeHouse, that's sarcasm. So... <laughs> No, our nation has become immensely polarized, more so than I can ever remember. I mean, I'm 42 years old, so in the 42 years that I've been alive, I don't remember the kind of polarization in which we are currently experiencing. I think more than ever, people are choosing a corner in the boxing ring of this world that we live in, and rather than meeting in the middle somewhere, they're actually staying in their corners, and they're lobbing insults, and, and their whole goal is not to get to know each other's side, it's really to just win. And I'm concerned not, not because I'm political or, in fact, if, if you've been coming for any amount of time, you know that I don't really address political situations or circumstances. I, uh, I don't get involved unless the Bible speaks directly to it. But I'm concerned about this division, this polarization that's taking place in our world, in our country, because I'm concerned that it will infiltrate and it will, it will find its way into the church. It'll find its way into our offices, into our homes, and into our families. And, and my concern in this is that if we're not careful, something that has infected the world can infect the church. And it can infect the church because we have become so anemic and instead of being a city on a hill, what's happened is we've just become this dim flicker of a light because the body of Christ is not functioning how it's supposed to. There's something not right in the body of Christ. Now, that sounds super judgmental, and I don't mean to, to be judgy this morning. But I do recognize that when it comes to how we view this polarization of the world and how we view people, there's something in the, 
instruction manual of God's word where he has given to us this way in which we are to live and to love that's not happening. It's interesting to me that right in the middle of this instruction manual on how to pray is the statement to forgive us our debtors. It's almost as if Jesus is inviting us every single day of our life to wake up and to breathe the words, to, to, to speak them out, to say, God, I am going to need you in my life to be able to love those who are different than me. I want us to take a look at Paul's instruction on this from Galatians chapter 5. It's a familiar passage. We don't really read the whole thing as much as we quote a portion of it. But in verse 13, it says, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, I want you to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> That's usually where we stop it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, you're eating each other alive. I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised with the general premise to not bite people. Right? I mean, I'm really sorry about this. But my middle child, Claire... When, when she was about two years old, was playing in a, in a mall playground, and some little demon child, no, I'm just kidding, some little child comes up, takes her face, and I don't know if he was trying to kiss her, but he bit her cheek and drew blood. Interestingly enough, from then on, in Sunday school, all of a sudden, the teachers are saying, Pastor Ryan... And they emphasize the pastor. I don't know why they do that, but they're like, Pastor Ryan, your daughter is biting people. And so we would have a conversation. Claire, it's not okay to bite people. And, and by conversation, I mean something else. But, but we had this process of discipline that my daughter knew that it was not okay to bite people. And Paul recognizes that when we begin to devour one another, eventually we will be consumed by one another. So there's really two options that we have. We have this option to live in the freedom of which Christ has set us free and to love people, no matter who they are, to love them. Or we can live in bondage. We can live in the bondage that where God has given us the defenses. He has created a way to make us whole and to thrive and to live life. We can actually reject that and live into the bondage where we aren't serving one another. And instead, we just decide that if they think differently than me, I'm going to eat them alive. You can say, well, okay, so I understand I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. I'm supposed to love people who think differently, who act differently, and, uh, and, and so, okay, how? How do I do that? How do I, rather than sit in the corner of the ring, how do I figure out a way, instead of fighting, to actually hear and to love and communicate with people? Well, Paul gives us some instruction on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he gives us this beautiful illustration of how the church is the body of Christ. And it starts in verse 14. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would make it no less, not any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? I mean, it's just this rhetorical statement. It's like, of course, yeah, you couldn't do it. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, 
God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were single member, uh, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the great honor and our, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Listen to this last line that Paul gives us. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, then we all rejoice together. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. Here's the first point, the inner dependence, the, the connection the understanding that within a community, the interdependence within a community is necessary for a full life. We find ourselves more polarized than ever before, and that is not a picture of gospel community. And listen to me when I say this. I'm not just speaking of our church. I'm not saying our church is polarized. I'm just saying the world in which we live even the church, the big C church, is polarized. And it's not gospel community. And we can look at things like ethnicity, we can look at gender, and, and I think that in some ways we are getting better at recognizing the importance and the understanding that there are things that should be honored and treasured versus divided. I think we're making headways in there, but I still think there are points in which we are missing it. One of the, the greatest uh, controversies of us as a denomination is that we are what they call egalitarian, meaning that we let women preach. And we would say, as a church, we believe that women are a part of the body of Christ and should be honored as such. See, if we don't see the value in the deeper types of diversity, then we miss out on what God created and intended for the community he calls the church. Let me give you an example of this idea of a lack of value. I'll just use a stereotypical example of the nuclear family. You have a husband who, uh, who has made the decision that he's going to work his life off in order to provide for his family. And so he goes to work, he works 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and he's invested into working and providing so that his family has a roof over their head, has clothes on their body and food at the table. And then you have this wife who has chosen, because her husband is providing now, this wife who's chosen to stay at home, and she's taking care of the kids, making sure that they get to school on time, making sure they get to all of their sporting practices, and, and caring for the, the children, working with them in their homework. And there's, there's this division, this disconnect in this story Whereas many of us would look at that from an outward perspective and think, oh yeah, that seems like a normal, natural thing. The problem is, is if you were to dig a little bit deeper, what you discover is that there is a sense of, of frustration and anger in the husband because he doesn't feel valued and he doesn't feel that there's a sense of understanding or appreciation that, that his wife has for him for all of the sacrifice that he's making. And then you talk to the wife and you discover that, that the wife also feels this underappreciated life and, and this lack of appreciation because the husband won't be there to, to, to help the kids with homework and to walk with them to school and to get them to their 
uh, sports, sporting events, and then there's this, this division that's taking place, and they're not in unity. And all of a sudden, this frustration and bitterness becomes unforgiveness. It becomes a debt that needs to be forgiven. And you say, well, what does that have to do with the body of Christ? I think that there is an underappreciated value that comes with those who do things differently, who have different gift mix, who function in different ways. See, God made the church diverse on purpose. He, he, he actually wants different gifts. He wants different ways of thinking. As a staff, we all think very differently. Not all of us. Most of us think very differently. There's a few who think the same. And I lump them into one person and I put them on a shelf and say, stop telling me to think differently. We think differently. We, we come at things differently because God created us to be in unity and different. The best relationships are when differences can be united by something greater, by something higher, by someone smarter who can put all of these diverse pieces together. Paul Again, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the, grace of, uh, the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'll stop for a second because I listened to my dad's message and although I appreciate his humility to say as though, listen, if God can use me, he can use you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the, the sentiment behind it but I'm his pastor and I get to pastor him with the reality that you are not lesser than anyone. That to be able to say, well, to, you know, if God can use me, lonely old me, no, you are a part of the body of Christ and it doesn't matter if, if, if your wife wrote your sermons or your, you know, it doesn't, you are a part of the body of Christ and God is using you no matter who you are and your value and your worth is the same. It's the same. And it's for a purpose. God has, has put this body together and we're, a, we're probably not, the premise behind it is pretty, but we're probably a little ugly. That this body of Christ is, is made up of some interesting parts. But it's with the purpose, as Paul talks about, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To love people, to love your neighbor as yourself. That, that we, as a church body, have a job to do. If we take what Paul is saying here, and we apply it into our own church, into our own relationships, then we see that there can be then this gap that takes place of diversity between people who have different perspectives. People who look differently, who act differently. People who bring different gifts to the table. And rather than just simply saying, you're there, and I'm here, meet me here because I can't get to you. Rather than saying that, if we're going to be in relationship, then one of us, rather than saying if we're going to be in relationship, then one of us has to figure this out. 
Maybe what we need to learn to say as the body of Christ is to say that if we're going to be in relationship, then we need the grace of God to show up greater in our lives than ever before. Instead of looking at people we may disagree with and saying may, uh, instead of looking at them and saying you need to change, we look to him and say, may your grace help me to navigate my relationships, help your grace to navigate my workplace. God, may your grace help me to navigate my conversations with my neighbors. See, grace is this, this beautiful gift. We've, we've heard this before. We've heard about grace, but maybe not in the context of, of this, this stopgap, this, this thing that fills the gap between me and them. Grace is this gift from God that's a, a piece of his presence and power that he gives you. That Although you don't deserve it, it's there to fill the gap, to make up the difference between the way things are supposed to be versus the way things are. If it's God's grace that we need, to have whole relationship, to have a, a faith community that loves and cares and embraces our differences. Jesus says that every morning we have to wake up and with the breath that is in our lungs be able to say, God, will you give me your grace? What would happen if the church begins to walk in a greater awareness of our need for his grace. What would happen if every morning we wake up with every breath that we breathe with a greater awareness in the relationships that I have and the relationships that I don't have? A greater awareness of the power of God that, that works through his grace that could even bring the Gentiles into the family of God. See, I think we get hung up as Christ followers because we think when we hear this message that, that what I'm communicating is that in some ways we have to accept people just the way they are. And I would argue if people are counterintuitive or counter culture to the word of God, we don't have to accept their circumstances, but we have to love them. And you say, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if we, we, I don't know. Well, Paul says in the same text to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. We have an opportunity to love people in such a way that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. If we want the grace of God to flow through our lives, then, then we have to allow God to administrate our lives. And that's the challenge right there, isn't it? I mean, we're okay with God having portions of our lives, but to actually dictate and administrate and to, uh, to direct our lives, that's a whole other story. We're good at partial release, partial submission to God, but when it comes to all of it, we struggle. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. There's no definition of what the less honorable parts are. We don't know if we're talking about feet because they stink. We don't know. We don't know. Only that we are to intentionally elevate them. 
honor or honorable means weighty. It means worth. It means value. And the reality is, is we have people in our life who are easy to love. We have no problem loving the people that we love. Right? If, if, I, if, I, go to, if I go to Russell and, and, and I, I say to Russ, hey man, is there anything I can say? Because I love Russell and anything I can do to serve you. That's easy for me. Most days. No, it is. It's easy for me. But, but to go up to somebody that maybe I, I disagree with theologically, go up to somebody who, who I don't see them bringing any value into my life, I, I'm okay with them just being over there. Not, not you guys. I like you guys. See, what happens oftentimes is we love the people that we love that are easy to love. But the mystery that's revealed here is that the love of God in action is that when you look at someone and think that that maybe they are different or they are less than, you don't check out and you don't walk away, but it is a part of our responsibility as a part of the body to come alongside and to give honor where you see less honor. So that rather then dividing my honor, it becomes this buoyancy that actually lifts others up. See, you can see someone as less honorable for a lot of different reasons, right? If you graduated from Texas A&M and you meet somebody who graduated from the University of Texas, less honorable, and vice versa. So it could be the school that they graduate from you see less honorable. It could, it could be an age thing, right? I just posted, a, I never post things on, uh, or share things on Facebook unless it's church-related. I shared a, a, a quick little uh, graduation story by Lou Holtz. I didn't really pay much attention to the language on it, but it said something that every, millennials need to, uh, every millennial needs to hear. And I thought, I posted on, I I edited my post and said, something that every one of us needs to hear. Right, I mean, it's, it's, we can discriminate or we can think of because they're millennials that they're less than. We can also think that because they've aged out of their gifting, they're less than. We can find things in our life and I'm not even touching on the big things. It's easy for us to see someone as less honorable. But the body of Christ says, no, actually we are to come together so that we can reflect the goodness of God. Last night I was sitting at the table. My wife was on my computer. I said, I need to work on my message. It was getting late. My daughter, my youngest daughter, I won't pick on Claire anymore. Um, I'll probably be in trouble when I go home. But my youngest daughter looked over and said, oh, it's fine, just, just talk about me. <laughs> and she was just joking, of course, I think. But I thought, you know what, I'll joke a little bit with you. And I'm probably, just so you know, we are tucking money away for counseling for our kids. But because <laughs> of my sermon illustrations... But I said, oh, okay, what, what part would you like me to talk about? Would you like me to talk about what, it's, what, what, the, what the consequences are or lying to people? Would you like me to talk about the consequences of peer pressure when you convince your friends to go down to Papa John's during second service? Like, what is it that you want me to talk about? And she was like, I was just kidding. You don't have to talk about me. And I was like, too late. No, but I am going to talk about her for a second because uh, there was a huge lesson that was learned. And the lesson is that uh, her mom asked her to uh, go out into the backyard. We have this handy, Dan, you don't even have to reach down with a bag or nothing. We got this thing. It's a pooper scooper thing and it's a claw and it goes down. And we just said, hey, you know what? You need to go into the backyard. You need to clean up the dog's poo. And so she looks at her mom and says, I don't want to. And I overheard it and I said, of course you don't want to. Nobody wants to go into the backyard and pick up poo. Like, nobody wakes up in their life and thinks, 
you know what I want to be? I want to be a poop scooper. That's what I want to do. No, nobody wants to do that. And I said, but guess what? Regardless of whether you want to do it, you're doing it. And so she goes out and she's got an attitude and, and she's out there and she's kind of picking it up. And we have a conversation later that's, that went something like this. Listen, I understand that you don't want to do this. But there's this huge lesson that's to be learned in this, in the difference between not wanting to do something and doing something that you don't want to do because of the value that it brings to someone else. See, if you don't do this, who's going to do it? Your mom. Not your dad, because this ain't your dad's dog. Your mom. So by doing something you don't want to do because you value the benefit and the blessing it brings to your mom, it changes the worth by which you do something. I want us to think about that in this context, that if you want to change what you want, right? if you don't want this or you don't want this, if you don't want to reach out to those people, If you want to change what you want, then change the worth that you see in it. You say, well, I don't I don't love, I don't want to love my wife anymore. Well, that's because you don't see the same worth or the same value that God sees. I don't want to be kind and gracious to that person across the aisle. Well, that's because you don't see the worth or the value that God sees in them. See, if you change what you want, if you want to change what you want, then you have to change how you see their worth. Well, does that mean then I I just, I put myself back into circumstances and situations in which I get burned or I get hurt, I experience brokenness? No, no. I mean, that's the hardest part of forgiveness, isn't it? Is, is, oh, I know I'm supposed to forgive. I know I'm supposed to, to release the debtor in my life. But am I supposed to just put myself back into a position to be hurt and broken again? And the answer is, of course not. And I would like to just give you a picture, if I could, for a second of what that looks like. Because when I was in the sixth grade, I, uh, I was, it was my first practice of Little League. It could have been my second or third, I don't remember, but it seems like it was my first practice. And in this first practice of Little League, uh, the coach told us, hey, you're going to be practicing sliding into second. And so we all got in a line and we ran to second base. We were in a grass field, which, which was probably not ideal for sliding conditions, but we were in a grass field and, we're, and I'm going and I'm sliding into second base and I, I do the thing where you put your foot behind you, but then I put my hands back, which you're never supposed to do, and I, and I bent my hand back and I cracked uh, my wrist. Oh, you guys were way more compassionate than first service was. Uh, so I cracked my wrist and I go to the doctor. Uh, it's completely broken all the way through and the doctor says, six weeks in a, in a what? And a cast. So Little League's done for me. Um, and he puts a cast on. And just on a side note, so you don't feel too bad for me, uh, that same summer with a cast, even though I didn't get to play Little League, I got to be Bat Boy for a day for the Houston Astros. Uh, back in the day of Nolan Ryan and Craig Reynolds and uh, Dickie Thon and all those guys. And, and, uh, and so um, I was out in the outfield during batting practice with my cast on, but I was wearing Craig Reynolds' glove. He let me borrow his glove. And a fly ball comes out, and I'm like, I'm in Little League, man. I got this. So I just walk over, and I put my glove out like that, and I totally forgot I was wearing a cast. (laughs) And that thing came flying in, and it was like somebody had shot it out of a rocket, and it hit and completely cracked my cast. So then that meant another couple of weeks in a cast, but it was so worth it. When, when something's broken, when you have a broken body, there has to be some sort of boundary or protective barrier that you put around that brokenness. 
for me. My wrist was broken. I put on a cast. Why do we do that? Why do we put this protective sur- surface around it? It's Again, I'm not a doctor, but I know enough to know that it's so that the bone can actually heal rather than it just flopping around, just continuing to be broken. That nothing is going to heal if you just continue to leave it the way it is. You have to protect, you have to protect it and you have to put a, a, a barrier around it, a, a boundary, if you will. But you have to to put a cast on it with the intention, not with the intention that you're going to now live with a cast on your arm. I mean, think about it. You know what happens if you just leave a cast on too long, right? Your arm, if it's on your arm, shrinks down to nothing. You got no muscle left in, in your arm. And about two days for a sixth grader, it smells really bad. It stinks. And if you've ever had a cast, you know what I'm talking about. And if you've ever had a cast, you know you smelled it. Like, does it stink? Oh, this is the day. This is the day it stinks. If, you, if we don't, if we go into allowing God to heal our brokenness, it's fine to put boundaries around, it's around our brokenness. But if we leave those walls up, if we leave those boundaries in place for the rest of our life, you will spiritually atrophy and you will stink. You will. You go through a season of healing and allow those walls that you've put up, that protection to come down, to come off. So how do we allow God's grace into our life. We know we need it. We know we need God's grace to fill the gap between us and them. Paul goes into that in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. This is what we know as the love chapter. This is the chapter in which you hear at every single wedding, and it has nothing to do with the platonic form of love that we're talking about, and yet I use it at weddings because it sounds good. Paul says, if you want to have grace in your life, you have to learn what it means to love people the way that I love you. And he gives us some instruction. He says, love is patient and kind. That's the English standard version. The King James translation says, love is long-suffering. It's probably a better, more accurate translation, right? If you've ever been in love, love is long-suffering. You say, whoa, I'm going to be married to you. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Think about this with people who think differently than you. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. But no, love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things. Love endures all things. How is the body going to work? It has to work with love. You know what comes next, right, after 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You know what's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? It's the manifestation and the outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. And I wonder if maybe this is the point for us. Because I I do hear comments or moments of, of judgment in the American church not expressing the manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit enough or at all. I hear that about our church. We have some who think we are too much and some that are too little, and I don't think we've found a good balance. I think our balance is probably with too little. 
But the point is, is that what the Holy Spirit is trying to get through to us is that God is working through a community of faith because, let me say it like this, if we want to see more miracles, if we want to see more expression of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if we want to see to the place in which Paul talks about pursue love, then eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why prophesy? Because it benefits the whole community. But, but if we want to see prophecy, if we want to see the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I think what God is telling us is that you first need to learn how to love people. That if you pursue love, that's the prerequisite. And you can say, well, I love people. I'm just saying, could we do a heart check in a polarized world where we would say, you know what? I don't love people. There's people on my Facebook post that I just like, There's people who make comments about politics or this or that or theology And there's something in us that's just like, ugh, I want to be right. And I would say maybe, maybe this is for us, for Lifehouse Church, a bit of a wake-up call. To say before any of those things can happen, we've got to learn what it is to love people. We've got to learn what it is to love people who we don't currently love. And that's a hard place to be in. Because we will never love those who are different than us, who think differently, until we fully understand God's love for us. And so I'm praying for all of us, myself included, that we would have a revival of our hearts and a fresh awakening of what God's love is for us so that we will have the grace to love people. And out of that, I think we will see greater miracles. Out of that, we will see more of the outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I look forward to that. But I recognize that God's got to work on me, my love first and foremost. Let's pray.